Thanks very much. Uh, let me just say uh, what, what an honor it is uh, for me to chair this uh, distinguished panel. Uh, many of them I've had the opportunity to work with over the years as an editor, uh, and it's uh, always been the case that I've, I've hardly had to touch a comma, so uh, it's, it's, al it's always been wonderful for me. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'll, I, I'll uh, introduce our, our three panelists in a moment. Uh, I think it's in light of our our previous uh, discussion, it's, it's, uh, it's fitting that we begin on this question of social policy and urban policy, after all the subject in, in many ways in which I think we, we do most identify uh, the public interest. Uh, so we have uh, three very distinguished uh, panelists with us today. Uh, first, we'll be hearing from uh, Lawrence Mead, uh, professor of politics at New York University. Uh, he's been a visiting fellow at Princeton and Hoover Institution. Uh, he's the author of uh, seven, s seven, if I'm counting right, uh, highly acclaimed books, uh, countless articles, and as I've mentioned, many of them uh, which have appeared in the public interest. Uh, his, his research interests are, are what indeed he'll be talking on tonight, the problem of poverty and, and welfare and welfare reform. Uh, he's one of the principal exponents of... Uh, of work requirements, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, I, I think he, he wouldn't mind my saying this, he's probably one of the last uh, men in America who's not afraid of the word paternalism when we talk about social policy. Uh, so uh, we'll uh, start with you. Well, thanks very much, Adam. Uh, this Congress is a great idea. I owe a lot to the public interest and to Adam, and I'm delighted that he's chairing the session. Uh, what I'm going to do is track uh, several uh, overlapping phases in uh, the public interest's uh, publications about welfare. These are, to some extent, tendencies that you can see throughout the journal, but I think they're also uh, overlapped in time. Uh, I found researching this uh, rather easy, and the reason is I have a habit of writing summary cards about articles that I think are particularly important that I read in the journal, and I wrote so many on the public interest articles that I had it all together. I mean, sometimes entire issues, I'd have to write pages on, on every article. In the, I used to write emails to Adam saying, what are you doing? You're taking up all my time reading all these great articles. So uh, that made it easy. Uh, and the first thing to say is... Uh, uh, that there is actually a liberal phrase phase in the public interest. I found it came upon an article by James Tobin who made a case for an income guarantee along the lines of the negative income tax experiments of the 60s, 70s, and, and 80s. Uh, this, of course, is the holy grail of liberal welfare reformers. They wanted to guarantee everyone an income without any work requirements. And a later article by Cameron and Kahn basically ar argued for a European-style uh, social policy where, again, we don't ask any questions about lifestyle. And I, I have to say, finding these articles, I was shocked. I said, Does this really appear in the public interest? You know, But it just shows you how the article, the, the journal was to a certain extent uh, a, a, uh, a child of its time. And in the 60s, the whole discussion of, of social policy was to the left of where it is now. And so it, was po it is possible to look back and find uh, articles that are actually liberal. However, as others have already pointed out, the founding tendency of the public interest is really what we call neoconservatism. Uh, for me, that means something fairly specific. It means the viewpoints of uh, disillusioned liberals, most of them senior academics, uh, who accepted 
uh, government, a government role in social policy and principle, but who doubted that government could do the things that the, so, that the great society wanted it to do. Uh, they didn't question government involvement in principle, but they thought that government was uh, uh, unable to do uh, serious things to overcome poverty. Uh, there, the, it was the, the fact that most of these authors, Nathan Glazer, these are just articles that I found that fall in this category. Uh, many of the, of the authors, uh, like Nathan Glazer, were already established figures before the public interest was founded, and, that's, and they were very effective in getting their views across. And that's why I think the journal got attention from the very beginning. It jumped immediately to the front ranks of publications of social policy, and that's because of the standing of the founding authors, including, of course, Irving Crystal. James Q. Wilson and others. Uh, also, and this has come up as well, the, the audience that these authors had, although they themselves were identified as conservative, they were speaking to their left. Their dialogue was primarily with liberalism, and many of them were disillusioned former liberals. They weren't really thinking about the right. The right wasn't very important yet. They were thinking about the errors of the left predominantly. Um, and uh, another thing you could find in common in their viewpoints was a focus on culture and lifestyle. Basically, they said the evil of the, of the great society was not that they were trying to solve poverty. That was great. But they were focusing entirely on the economics of the problem and on the opportunity issues and not on lifestyle and culture. And those uh, concerns uh, surfaced uh, even more strongly uh, later. Now, that, this is true in the founding period, late 60s, uh, 70s. And then you get an, a, an episode in the 80s where uh, a more uh, virulent anti-government kind of conservatism comes on the, screen, on the, on the uh, radar screen. This part, partly reflects the Reagan era, but also it reflects the advent of Charles Murray as a, a major protagonist in the welfare debates. Uh, Charles' first important publication setting out the argument that he made in Losing Ground appears actually in 1982 in the article The Public Interest. Uh, that led to uh, a, uh, a mobilization by the academic establishment against Charles, where they, where they mobilized all the counterarguments they could think of. And among the most important uh, rejo rejoiners appeared, in fact, in, Elwood, in public interest uh, by Elwood and Summers uh, a couple of years later. And Charles wrote uh, further rejoinders after that. So um, Charles was, I think, a lightning rod. Uh, he, he made a fundamentalist argument that welfare was actually counterproductive that other social programs were feeding the problems they were uh, claiming to solve, and therefore government was not simply futile, but government was in fact part of the problem, and that was, of course, the viewpoint that Reagan took. Now, at a still later time, uh, overlapping this, this tendency, but tending later, is the form of government, a form of conservatism that I think eventually triumphed in the welfare area, and that is uh, what I would call be government conservatism or paternalism. Uh, this argument says uh, that government is not necessarily futile or counterproductive, but government cannot be permissive. So the evil of the great society is that it is, is oriented only to benefits to helping people in economic ways, but it doesn't demand reciprocity. It doesn't involve enforcing values that are essential for a constructive life. So the answer is not necessarily to throw away government or cut it back, as Charles wanted, but rather to change government so that it enforces good behavior. Uh, this assumes you can do that, that their values are really not a dispute. The poor share conventional values. What they don't do is share conventional lifestyle. So you have to require that people who are on aid uh, do things uh, to live constructively. Uh, I was rather astounded, I have to say, to see how many times I argue this in the public interest. I can't even get the titles on here, so I've just got the, the numbers. Uh, and, but I'm not alone. Uh, others uh, also have said similar things, um, Besharoff and his co-authors and Isabel Sawhill more recently. So there, are some, there is a, uh, a group of moderate to conservative uh, poverty experts who, 
who now take this position. In fact, some of Bill's articles are so much like some of my earlier articles that I, I would call her up and say, Bill, you're singing my song. And she would, of course, refuse to admit this, that her views had changed at all. But, uh, of course, they have changed. A couple of the later articles I wrote uh, were about Wisconsin, the, the state that uh, uh, ultimately did the most to reform welfare and where you see a paternalist policy most fully realized. Um, this is the, uh, the form of conservatism, I say, that finally came to fruition in the welfare reform of the 90s. Uh, uh, other forms of conservatism certainly have not uh, gone away, and they're influential. they are still influential. But the dominant form is the, the form that links uh, work requirements to aid to families. Uh, Doug and I dispute who invented the term paternalism. He claims to have done it ahead of me. Uh, that just goes to show, as John Kennedy said, that success has a thousand fathers while failure is an orphan. I think that's what we're seeing here. Um, now, my sense is that if you look at other areas, being to see what John says about crime, I think if you, if you look at other areas of social policy, you will see a movement rather like this. If you were to look at crime or education, uh, you would see a movement uh, uh, away from initial criticism and then fundamentalist attacks towards something more like uh, big government conservatism. Now, let me turn to the question of whether whether and how the public interest was influential in shaping welfare policy. Uh, it's possible, one can argue, that uh, the authors that appear in the public interest were registering their opinions in this, in this venue, but they also wrote books and articles elsewhere, and maybe that was the way they had most of their influence. I think there's truth to that, but also the public interest had influence in its own right, and there are two reasons for this, I think. Um, uh, the first is... Um, that the public interest engaged in what I would describe as truth-telling about the poverty problem and welfare. Uh, this is um, virtually all the articles in the public interest that deal with this question have a candor and directness about them that is not found in almost all the rest of scholarly writing about the poverty problem. Most academic experts on these subjects aren't willing to deal candidly with the behavioral and cultural dimension of poverty. There are several reasons for this. Now, the one we think of immediately is, is PC, that, that obviously if you focus on culture, it seems to be blaming the victim, and you, it leads towards policies that are more conservative than uh, you would otherwise have. I think there's truth to that, but today a larger problem, it seems to me, is there are two other things I would mention. One is that it's already come up in connection with uh, Ken's comments in the last panel. Most academics today who deal with poverty are extremely narrow and technical in their training and their interests. Uh, their focus really in the poverty area is on statistical modeling, on uh, precise uh, analysis of large data sets. Uh, they don't have much hands-on uh, research experience actually dealing with the institutions or programs. They never get out and, and, and actually confront uh, programs in the field. They never talk to anybody. Uh, they don't have any research except the analysis of these data sets. And they're very good at that, but the amount of information going into that uh, is simply uh, very narrow. Uh, so the models they come out with uh, tend to suggest that poverty is, is, is related to social and economic conditions because those are the things you can measure. You can construct a statistical model that, that looks like that, uh, and it makes it look as if poverty is simply due to the opportunity structure. Uh, that isn't realistic. It leaves culture out. It also leaves out the role of the institutions in uh, enforcing or not enforcing the key values. Uh, so uh, 
people who do research on poverty could not do the kind of writing that appear in the public interest. They're not able to say things clearly and directly to use the English language. Uh, much of the research that appeared in the public interest, actually many of it, much of it was rested in some cases on research that was more technical. I mean, I wrote a number of technical articles about Wisconsin that were statistical and all that. But uh, the question is, can you translate that into a message for a broader audience? And most of today's uh, academics just can't do that. Uh, and as a result, uh, the public interest, I think, filled a void that was there waiting to be filled. Um, and a further factor is that uh, the academic world in, is, I th engages in the way it looks at the poverty problem is profoundly elitist. The, these are people who generally come from very, very uh, privileged backgrounds themselves. They're very successful. They find it hard to imagine that people who are less successful can uh, do the things that they do. So the tendency, the tendency is to exempt uh, the poor from all the normal social expectations because they are seen as very, very fundamentally different from those who are doing the analysis. Um, now, I think what happened in, in the public interest is that all of those problems were set aside. As I mentioned, the public interest authors tended to be able to write things clearly and directly. They were good at English. Uh, I think that's a major factor in Charles Murray's influence, that he is simply a superb wordsmith. Uh, the guy puts the words down with a force and directness that is uh, always amazing to me. Uh, his literary ability alone is a reason to, to explain uh, why he triumphed over his critics in lots of ways. Um, now, you could say that the public interest authors were themselves elitist, too, because these are people coming from usually from very eminent academic positions, and they're very accomplished. People like Jim Wilson are accomplished in several different ways. So they're very impressive. But the elitism is of a different kind. It's more that of the traditional wise man or wise woman, you know, looking at a problem and telling the truth about it in a, in a, in a freestanding and courageous manner. Uh, and another feature of that, which is very alien to traditional American thinking in general, is that most of the, the public interest arguments about poverty and welfare have, I would say, an undertone of tragedy. They're, they're, there's a darkness to it. They're talking about a profound tragedy, which is that we have in our midst a population that simply doesn't satisfy the normal assumptions of the American system, uh, a group that has it, finds it very hard to advance even their own self-interest, let alone societies. So the assumption made in our founding documents and in the Federalist Papers, there are problems to orchestrate individual self-interest in such a way that the collective interest is achieved, that we don't even get to that problem. We have to first of all achieve individuals who can obtain their own self-interest, let alone society. And the essence of today's poverty is that people do not do that. They live dysfunctional lives. They defeat even their own self-interest, let alone societies. So you have to bring onto the stage questions like family and upbringing, things that never appear in the founding documents, because it was simply assumed that families produce functional citizens. Um, so there's, there's a tragedy in the background, which goes back to the nation's discovery of the poverty problem in the 60s. And, and everything about our response since then has been grappling with the tragedy. Well, there's a greater candor about that in the public interest, I think, than in any other publication about, about the problem. Now, a second factor. Um, that explains the influence, I think, is that the public interest involved a forum. It involved debate among points of view that is more explicit than you see in the rest of the social policy discourse. Uh, the, the articles I had on the screen showing the response to Murray and Murray's rejoinders, uh, this kind of thing was quite common. So there's, again, a candor about admitting that there is a discourse, that there is debate. Now, in the, in the political arena, that always existed. But in most of the uh, writing about poverty, it's hard ever to see the debate come on the page. Because what comes on the page is simply the technical reasonings or this uh, monolithic uh, liberal assumption about the nature of the poverty problem. 
So uh, I would say that a consensus finally does emerge in the journal and in government about the nature of the welfare problem. Uh, the original neoconservative emphasis breaks with the naive optimism of the Great Society period and points out realis realistic problems that we have to grapple with. As I say, that got attention, and, and, and it, I think it, it filled the hunger for, for realism that we hadn't seen. And then the Murray controversy helps to demolish uh, the confidence of the establishment. Uh, although Murray uh, faced effective criticism to many of his technical claims, he threw the liberals on the defensive, and they had to address his issues rather than the ones they might have preferred to address. Uh, and so together, I think the, uh, those two stages in the journal's life uh, had the effect of undermining the old order. And then this new approach that had to do with big government conservatism uh, was able to, to build a different social policy on the other side of entitlement uh, after we get to be more realistic. Um, and that has led us, left us in a more uh, positive position. Not that all the problems are solved, there are a great many problems left, but at least we now understand that, that effective policy has to involve some combination of helping people and expecting good behavior. I think that really is a watershed. <coughs> I just want to respond briefly to some other issues that arose earlier. Um, the suggestion was made in the previous uh, panel that there were, might be important divisions between different kinds of conservatism that came up in the public interest. Uh, that might be true, but I, I see an underlying unity to all the varieties of conservatism that I've talked about. And that is that conservatives believe above all in the importance of individual responsibility. And they're ready to hold people, even if poor, to traditional expectations about good behavior. That's true for the small and the big government conservatives. Because the small government people, people like Murray, by taking away the welfare state, they basically are going to leave people with no, no, no other way to survive except to fulfill the normal expectations of good behavior. They let the market do the enforcing. The big government people come in and say, we've got to help people. We can't let the market do everything. But we're also going to enforce good behavior. So both sides have this ambitious view of what individual responsibility should mean. And the essence of liberalism on the other side is precisely to cast in doubt the possibility that people can fulfill the normal expectations. So I see liberals as, as, as pessimists about the confidence of the poor and their moral responsibility. Most conservatives are more optimistic, not necessarily utopians, but expecting uh, ordinary good behavior. And that is what holds them together. And the importance of that is that in the, in the era we now are in, those sorts of issues are vastly more important than they previously were in politics. I mean, I, nobody's used the term yet, but I think part of what lies behind the public interest and its prominence is what Fukuyama calls the end of history namely the fading of traditional ideological divisions among the functional non-poor populations uh, in the Western world. Uh, it isn't exactly the end of ideology, but it's the fading away of profound disagreement about the organization of the society among people who are in the economy, who are working. And instead, we have controversy about the groups that are not working, that are outside the society. And those issues are not ideological. They're about morals, about whether or not you should fulfill the values that are now no longer in question. The ideological debates were precisely about the values, whether or not you could expect people to survive in the market or whether they had claims on sustenance through government, whether you trusted capitalism, basically. Those issues are now recessive, and instead we have this concern about groups at the edge of society. And for them, the issues are no longer big government or small. It's really whether to have good behavior or not, whether to insist on good behavior. So the moral questions come to the fore. Ideology fades away, and on the new questions, these issues of responsibility are absolutely crucial. And on, that, on, that, on those matters, it seems to me the varieties of conservatism are united. They basically say we cannot give up the, the essence of the American system, which is to believe in individual responsibility. Everything else is secondary to that. 
And social policy is aimed above all at reaffirming that value. And because we're doing that, it's, policy has shifted fundamentally away from the worldview of the great society. And in that way, I think uh, the public interest played a major role in moving us forward. Okay. Uh, Next up, next up, we'll have John John Delulio, who perhaps uh, needs no introduction, but let me do so anyway. Uh, professor of political science at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute as well as the Brookings Institution. He served uh, as director of the White House Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. Uh, he's 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 the author of over a dozen books. Uh, and too many articles to count, many of which appeared in the public interest. And I would add he's really written on an, an absolutely astounding uh, number of subjects from government institutions to religion and social policy to the Constitution uh, to crime and prison policy, which, which at least in part he'll be talking about uh, uh, this evening. I, I can't help but remember, I think the first article that uh, at least I uh, uh, was able to publish of John's when I was at the public interest was titled uh, "White Crime: What White Lies About Black Crime," which I, I think, which I think tell, tell, tells you something about our next speaker. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, thank you, Adam. Uh, you lied about not having to change commas. Uh, that must have been Ramesh and Larry. Uh, you know, you made me look good, as most editors always do. Um, and uh, I want to thank the Mad my colleagues at the Madison Program, as somebody with the Madison Program myself, I want to thank my Madison colleagues. I don't know where Professor George went, and I don't know whether he's a Theocon or a Neocon or uh, what, I think he's a Neo-Theo, Theo-Neocon of some kind, um, our fearless leader. I want to thank him as well. This is a great thing to do, to put on a conference uh, celebrating uh, really one of the greatest um, policy journals, magazines, call it what you want, I think, uh, ever. And I'm um, just really happy to be here with you. Now, I was asked to talk about crime and urban policy, or urban policy with a focus on crime. So I get to talk about just plain cons, you know? You know good old-fashioned cons. Convicts, prisoners, ex-prisoners, people who want to be ex-prisoners. And um, I'm happy to do that. And uh, to cooperate, just today, earlier this morning, the Bureau of Justice Statistics released uh, one of its, I don't know if it's an annual, so I don't follow this as much as I used to by any means, but one of its annual or semi-annual reports on the number of people who are under correctional supervision in America, and they count up now 7 million people on any given day who are under some form of correctional supervision, 4 million and change on probation, which is what you get if you don't go to prison or jail, but you're convicted, uh, even in many cases of a violent crime, uh, 2 million and change in prison or jail. We don't have enough time to go into the distinction between prisons and jails. Uh, just avoid both of them. And uh, 700 to 800,000 people who are on some form of parole, which is what you get when you get out of prison early. Now, uh, what, I'm going to get to this question of the influence of the public interest uh, uh, in various ways in my own. I'm not going to be as scholarly and systematic as Larry because Larry wouldn't believe it and no one else would either, so I'm not going to pretend. Uh, but let me, um, let me just say that if you look at the commentary this morning on that Bureau of Justice Statistics report, there is the normal amount of silly business, elite commentary silly business about what it tells us. Another record, which occurs every six months. And of course, there's another record. Over 300 million people are in America. 
the country keeps getting bigger, you know. Uh, and people look at the rates and so forth. But what I would say to you is that there is less silly business, and the silly business that there is is less silly on this subject than it would have been 15, 20, or 25, certainly 25 years ago. And I think for that, you can thank, at least uh, in no small measure, at least in part, the ideas about crime and punishment that emerged or echoed over the years from the public interest. And I'm not taking uh, credit here, as I'll suggest in a moment. Uh, there were many others who were far more instrumental uh, by, by every measure than I was in any of that. Um, what do I mean when I say less silly business? Well, uh, today, um, almost nobody dismisses or downplays the sheer fact that there are, in fact, more people who are under correctional supervision, including people who have committed one or more violent crimes, uh, who are on probation or parole than are incarcerated. Nobody, but many years ago, I have saw some of the scars, they're pretty well healed now to prove it, people doubted that. People talked about alternatives to incarceration when, in fact, incarceration had been the alternative, long been the alternative to other forms uh, of punishment. And as I'll say in closing, very much in, uh, in passing and closing, uh, there are still debates, make no mistake, and I think there are many legitimate debates. Personally, I think there's a quite legitimate debate about mandatory minimum drug penalties and, and how they've run, uh, far, run, run amok. But whether in my own party, which is, I'm proud to say, the Democratic Party, I know there are at least two of us here, Dr. Galston, and, uh, 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 you know, or other left or center-left institutions, um, whether, whether there or elsewhere, it really now does take a PhD in criminology to doubt that locking people up who have committed lots of crimes uh, reduces crime. It really does. Uh, when I was uh, a graduate student at Harvard, uh, I'll get to Straussianism in a minute, Brother Crystal. I, I'll get there. Uh, but when I was a, a graduate student uh, at Harvard, I studied with James Q. Wilson, my mentor and friend, and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, I feel like the person you know, who I owe virtually everything to. But uh, Jim had, was working on the second edition of the book, Thinking About Crime. So the first edition came out in 75. He had written bits and pieces in the public interest. Second edition came out in 83. I was at Harvard, and I helped you know, work, on, work on the book. And so when I went home uh, to South Philly and, you know, three years into Harvard, no PhD, no work, a wife, still no kids, uh, my friends say, you know, what are you doing up there? I said, well, I think this guy, it's uh, James Q. Wilson, and uh, he's working on a book called Thinking About Crime. And, and oh, yeah, I said, yeah, and it's the second edition of this book, Thinking About Crime. <laughs> and my friend, Steve Fenor, who works at and own, now owns a gas station in South Philly, said, see, that's the problem. You go to Harvard. You start thinking about crime. Think, why don't you just do it? Um, um, so, so for people like my friend Steve and my friend Eddie Heron, the plumber, and others, lifelong friends, what the public interest was and what people like James Q. Wilson were, were really, obviously, incredibly smart, gifted, giant, intellectual guys who made it okay to think thoughts. I, I appreciate the point in the earlier panel by Professor Kirsch and that Populism is not what the public interest was, and I don't mean to suggest that. But there was, for me at least, when I first started reading the public interest, which I did when I was a commuting student to Penn uh, University of Pennsylvania, where I now teach, um, uh, when I was there in the 1970s, I started you know, falling across this journal thing called the public interest. There was a sense that there were actually opinions held by average people that these really smart intellectual people in the end agreed with, even though they got there by means that required a dictionary to figure out. Um, 
And for me, and I think for much of the public interest in terms of crime and urban policy, Jim Wilson, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, so many others, uh, you know, uh, the articles are too numerous uh, uh, to mention and the importance of the articles. Uh, for these purposes, or for the rest of this presentation, anything I say about crime, just think of me as James Q. Wilson, uh, plus 120 pounds, minus 110 IQ points, okay? <laughs> so if you got that, you'll understand the rest. Um, if you were trying to sort of figure out how to get a, a crash course in what the public interest had to say on matters of crime and urban policy, I sort of thought of this as a, uh, a pedagogical, I say this carefully because Ramesh actually had me for one course. He's a student of Professor George, so please do not guilt by association. Uh, but uh, if I was trying to think of it as a pedagogy, what, what would you do if you wanted students to figure out how to think about the public interest, at least the articles on crime and urban policy generally conceived, you know, names like Wilson and Moynihan and Murray and Mead and others. Um, and, you know, I, here's what I would do. I would ask them to go to that report written in 1965, the same year the journal was uh, started, by that then 38-year-old Department of Labor Assistant Secretary, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the famous Moynihan report, ask him to read that and then to take the articles in the public interest and sort them according to various arguments that Moynihan made in that report and then see how many are left out. See how many ar arguments, how many ideas, how many, especially I'm talking mainly about the empirical work obviously here, but others as well, uh, wouldn't fit with what Moynihan had to say, not on the subject per se of welfare, because that is the one area where you'd have a whole pile of things uh, that wouldn't fit, as Larry, as Larry uh, intimated and as I think we probably all agree, because uh, the great Senator Moynihan, uh, who I came to know most when I was in my one mercifully brief year in Washington, but uh, he, he obviously uh, was not a fan of welfare reform and, and to the very end, even though uh, it was clear that some of his most dire predictions about the effects of welfare reform had not come true, uh, always was uh, a very thoughtful, uh, but very much a skeptic, as I myself uh, maintain even in the face of contrary data. Um, but um, if you go and look at the rest of the Moynihan Report, which everybody cites, but very few people ever actually go and read, it seems, anymore, it had incredible things to say about crime. And almost everything that it said about crime was echoed subsequently by one or more articles in the public interest. Even, dare I say it, uh, the articles by uh, the great Professor James Q. Wilson, uh, many of those things are really all that is anticipated uh, in the Moynihan Report. What am I talking about here? Well, what I'm talking about here, obviously, is the argument about what happens when, uh, especially in low-income uh, urban areas, when children grow up, and I'm paraphrasing parts of Moynihan here, with little knowledge of their fathers, uh, children grow up uh, in large numbers experiencing alienation, a term that was uh, well, much used at the time. In the Moynihan report, he cites numerous observers uh, attesting in particular with respect to uh, young black males that, and I'm quoting now, contacts with middle-class whites and with uh, Negro churches were, are, were down, but their contacts with uh, other groups and more radical groups were up. And, of course, there's the famous phrase, the tangle of pathology. Well, you can go through the public interest, the writings on urban policy and crime, and see all that uh, writ large and written detail. Now, Moynihan said that the pathology's plainest symptom was the steady expansion, in particular focusing on the African-American community, uh, the steady expansion in the fraction of African-Americans who were receiving welfare payments 
or relying on public assistance programs in general. But its main future victims, he said, would be young, black, low-income urban males, uh, raised in homes without fathers and in neighborhoods with few working males. They would, he said, suffer, quote, a disastrous delinquency and crime rate. And he noted that already, now we're, you know, we're in 1965, a majority of crimes against the person, period, and certainly a majority of crimes committed against African-American uh, males were being committed by other African-American males. The cost of crime to this community, he said, is a combination of that to the criminal and to the victim. Well, that was about the summary of one of my early articles in the public interest. That could have just, where I talked about the truly deviant and the truly disadvantaged, it was really that sentence I, uh, of the Moynihan report, nothing much, much to add. Moynihan also, and I think this reflects something of what well, Larry was saying near the end of his presentation, he was also not entirely sure that there much could be done about this in certain ways. A cycle is at work, he said, where you have poor unmarried young women having too many children too early, who fail or quit school, who produce low income levels, and who lead ever, which leads in turn ever more girls onto welfare and ever more boys in, into crime. Um, it gets much more sophisticated than that. What I think the public interest did, as it were filling in or lining up with these key parts of the uh, analysis uh, that's there in the Moynihan report, is to flesh out a, a lot of these arguments. Flesh them out so well, and again, I, I can't prove and I wouldn't uh, claim to be able to prove that the public interest directly uh, had this, but, I, but you know, a lot of people cited it, and in particular, and Larry and others can correct me here if you think I'm, I'm uh, going too far, but progressive scholars, by the time you get to the late 1980s, progressive scholars like William Julius Wilson at Harvard, well, uh, at Chicago and then later at Harvard, pretty much permanently discredit sort of the knee-jerk reaction against the Moynihan report and all that's associated with the tangle of pathology, and with due caveats and qualifications, uh, agree that a black inner-city underclass culture exists and is implicated to some degree in unemployment and many other problems that disproportionately afflict inner-city black males. Now, uh, Adam mentioned the 19, I think it was 1994, uh, I'd written an essay in the public interest, The Question of Black Crime. I think it was Professor Glazer who figured out that was probably something that needed to be responded to. And there was then a symposium where I wrote the essay, White Lies About Black Crime, and there were a whole bunch of people who uh, responded to that on, on all different sides. But th that discussion, that debate, in some sense, when you look back on it, was sort of already, you know, it, the discourse had changed. And it had changed because of the work of Wilson and the work of Moynihan and the work of so many others, uh, including most particularly work that had appeared in the public interest. It changed for that reason, but it also changed because, alas, the facts had just become too weighty. The public interest always had a reality principle. I don't know whatever else you could say about it. It always had a reality principle. I'll get to Straussianism in a minute. Um, uh, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, by 1994, I mean, we're having this debate, but in 1994, the, the aforementioned Bureau of Justice Statistics is telling us that African-American males aged 14 to 24 made up 1% of the nation's population, 17% of all homicide victims, and 30% of all homicide perpetrators. You don't need a whole lot of further elaborate demonstration of the obvious by methods that are obscure or social science, you know, to prove uh, much beyond that. In the 75 largest counties, black males accounted for 7 in 10 of the violent juvenile defendants in criminal courts and about 65% of the juvenile murder defendants. In my hometown of Philadelphia alone, in the late 90s, 
over 1,000 black males were murdered, and 95% were killed by another black male. And black males, 18 to 24, were just 2% of the city's population, but 24% of its murder victims and 40% of its alleged murderers. So there's not a whole lot to argue about. What the public interest did was it got the facts out, it wrapped them in arguments by, again, incredibly, uh, you know, by giants on whose shoulders uh, people like me and, and so many others uh, then stood. And it made it acceptable, sort of in the more general discourse, uh, to ring policy conclusions, let the policy chips fall uh, where, wherever they might. I would suggest to you, I guess I also thought, uh, just to sort of begin to wrap up, I thought about what the public interest would be writing about if it were still around. I know it hasn't been gone that long, but, you know, uh, what would it be writing about if it were, what would I be, you know, why, what, how would I be bothering Adam if, uh, if he were still uh, available for me to bother him? Uh, on crime and urban policy, and I'm going to here sneak in just a small reference to welfare. Larry, you can slap my hand. Uh, uh, I think there are uh, about a half dozen things, but I'm not going to go into them in detail. I'm just going to, going to mention them. And this would be kind of at the other end, if I were doing the pedagogical exercise with students, what, you know, what would you say this people who sort of published these names of these people, you know, Wilson and Warning, what would they be doing now, uh, given your understanding of, of uh, social trends and dynamics and so on? Well, one thing I think is uh, they would be looking at the perverse and unintended consequences of various urban policies, crime policies, and I think at the top of that list would probably, or at least with respect to corrections, would be mandatory minimum drug laws. One of the things I love most about the public interest, the very, well, I'm going to come to this at the very end, but the second article I think I published in the public interest was in 87, and it was an argument, an essay against privatizing prisons. So memo to libertarians. Don't do it. Um, the last article I published in the uh, public interest was 2002. It was entitled The Three Faith Factors. And it basically said we know a lot, actually, about different ways of uh, thinking about how various religious influences affect behavior and shape urban life in particular. Uh, Adam even afforded me, I guess, a little bit of jargon, you know, ecological religion, programmatic, organic religion, please. Uh, but uh, it also said, we don't know anything, really, about faith-saturated as opposed to faith-based programs or whether spiritual transformation programs work. Memo to theocons. <laughs> don't go there. The public interest never, I never felt, I don't think anyone who ever published for it felt the least bit constrained. If your arguments were empirical, if you were academically or quasi-academically rigorous, if you had something important to say, you could say it. And you could say it more or less in a straightforward way. Well, I think mandatory minimum drug penalties would be at the top of that list now because the data, I think, are clear. I thought they were, I changed my view of it, coerced by the data in the late 90s. I think the data are crushingly clear now. I think we would, that, that would appear. A second uh, issue uh, related to uh, crime, uh, and this goes to something that Professor Kirsch uh, had to say. I agree that, you know, the uh, question of influence and abstractions and so on. I, I am at the University of Pennsylvania, which is a happy hotbed of critiques of, of Mr. Crystal, uh, Brother Crystal, Dr. Crystal, and Strauss. It's been so bad. I've had to defend his honor so much that I was actually driven to go read Strauss. Um, uh, I don't know if Professor Mansfield's here yet. Uh, he'll be here tomorrow, I guess. Um, so there is a fundamental truth. And you can tell him tomorrow when you see him for me that the fundamental truth is, I didn't do the reading. Um, uh, but, uh, but it turns out that with respect to prison Prison reform, I think the public interest had a major uh, impact. 
And it wasn't any one particular article. There were articles by Stanley Rothman and others on prison reform and prison violence. I had some early stuff in there. And you talk about the imperial judiciary. If you want to talk about the one major example where conservatives have made a tremendous difference, partnered with law and order Democrats, in pushing back against the imperial judiciary, look at the Prison Litigation Reform Act of 1995-96. These consent decrees that were everywhere, you know, uh, by federal judges have fallen. They're gone, by and large. And it was because of the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which could not have happened without the intellectual push that came from the public interest and many other journals. And I think that today, were there a public interest, maybe we'd be looking at the next phase of that. Now, just very, very briefly, I think a third issue would be youth crime. Um, I'm not going to get into it. I'm out of the business. I'm retired. Uh, but uh, I, have a, I have hanging in my closet at home a shirt which has been hanging there since 1996. I have washed it occasionally. And it, it says Operation 2006. Um, and it was a shirt that uh, was given out, and it was a denim shirt given out in Boston, 1996, because we were talking about, even though youth crime rates were already going down substantially in the, in the early 90s and by the mid-90s, the possibility that even with all the best interventions and prevention efforts and so on, with all the best monitoring, mentoring, and ministering efforts, we still might have a problem as we cruised into the middle of the next uh, decade. And in Boston, and Washington, D.C., and certainly in my hometown of Philadelphia, I could tell you, um, that little blip, not as big, thank God, as I feared and some others uh, believe has happened, I think we'd be talking Turkey about youth crime and youth gangs, not all this stuff that both, frankly, the left and the right uh, uh, folks put out now about it. Uh, it's not really much talked about anymore, but believe me, in South Central L.A. and North Central Philly and you know, other people are still a serious issue. I think the public interest would take it up. There are several education issues, illiteracy, uh, you know, in relation to school choice and what school choice has wrought. Uh, truancy and the dropout problem. I had a report uh, with my former White House colleague, one of the few who still talks to me, uh, John Bridgeland, uh, last April, on school dropouts. And uh, we've got two days of Oprah. So you know you've arrived when Oprah picks you up. If you've ever been picked up by Oprah, it just gets everywhere. It wasn't that even good of a report. Uh, but they, we basically documented, you know, these inflated graduation statistics are outrageous. In Philadelphia, you go to uh, high school and, you know, count the number of kids in ninth grade, count the number of kids in 12th grade, and there's half as many kids in 12th grade as in ninth grade. You don't need a Ph.D. to figure that out. And there's now renewed interest in dropout problems. And there's new, I think the public interest would be talking about that. Prisoner reentry, another issue. Ten, ten, over the next ten years, over five million people getting out of prison. Uh, Larry is, the, is soon to be the leading expert in the world on that. He's going to figure that out. I think his essays would have been published in the public interest uh, once he got them. And I'll just end with, you know, once a faith czar, always a faith czar. Um, you know, faith-based organizations, and in particular in relation to welfare reform. It's really interesting how the public interest always was willing to think seriously about issues of government reform. Probably for me, viscerally, as an urban Catholic working class you know, Democrat whose Italian grandmother used to drag him to church every day. She could say a prayer for three people, the two sons she lost during World War II and Mr. Roosevelt, right? Uh, probably a good thing that I wasn't hanging out with people who didn't accept the New Deal. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I think, I think really with respect to welfare reform and religious organizations, I think you would have a recognition 
that in places like Philadelphia, 40% of all welfare-to-work programs, for example, are run by faith-based organizations. Uh, the amount of services being provided, we know more today than we did a decade ago uh, about the ex really ex extraordinary extent to which actual social service delivery is coming by and through urban community-serving ministries. And yet we still have a profoundly dysfunctional governmental, government-by-proxy system, which seems incapable of figuring out uh, how, even at the margin, to give these organizations relatively more support and the traditional professional social service providers the government has contracted with for decades and failed and failed and failed to give them relatively less. If there were a public interest, uh, I think it would be talking about those issues, but I'm glad there was a public interest. Thank you. Uh, finally, we're, we're very fortunate to be joined by uh, Ramesh Panaru, and I should, I should probably begin by saying, since we're here at Princeton, that he's a Princeton graduate, uh, but he's probably better known, perhaps, as the senior editor at National Review. Uh, his, his numerous essays have appeared just about everywhere, the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, New Republic, Weekly Standard, First Things, I, I don't know if I've left, left any out. Uh, he, uh, he makes frequent appearances on television, news shows, uh, he's the author of several books, uh, and he writes quite often on what he'll be talking about today, uh, Social Security, Medicare, and old age. And I think we're especially fortunate to have him, if, if I can say so, in, in light of the earlier conversation, given that right, one of the stories or or uh, one of the stories about the public interest has, has to do with the story of conservatism. And we're fortunate to have a representative from National Review, founded in 1955, right? Just beat us out by 10 years. Uh, uh, which, which obviously brought a different perspective to a number of these issues, perhaps Social Security in particular. Well, thanks. Um, you know, uh, Adam uh, did do a fine job of, of keeping up public interests, um, magnificent uh, editorial standards, and one of the ways he did that was by never publishing me. Uh, if you, you'll notice I wasn't on that list. When he said uh, that he'd never touched a comma, I see there was a little backhanded uh, thing going on there. Um, but I think that looking around the room, I'm the obvious guy here to talk about uh, the problems of old age, <laughs> and, uh, Social Security and, uh, and Medicare. Um, actually, talking about uh, the public interests, um, Thought, the thought presented in the public interest about those topics is, is surprisingly easy uh, because uh, there was less of it than you might expect there to have been. And, uh, and one of the things I, that's always sort of struck me about neoconservatism is the things that propelled uh, a lot of former liberals uh, into being neoconservatives um, was that these were also a lot of the issues that conservatives succeeded on over the last Generation. I'm thinking about things like welfare and crime and sort of the perception of American decline, attitudes towards the military, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and sort of, you know, conservatism succeeded on all the things that the public actually cared about, uh, or that swing voters, uh, you know, the Reagan Democrats, cared about. And they didn't succeed, by and large, on uh, uh, issues where they didn't have uh, that kind of public anxiety. And I think the, it's quite clear that very few people ever have stayed awake nights 
worrying about the future solvency of uh, Social Security and of Medicare. And I think that the publishing history of the public interest suggests that uh, there weren't a whole lot of neoconservatives who were, uh, who were deeply invested in, this, in, in those issues. Um, I mean, there was, there was quite a bit more about healthcare in general, and sometimes I would touch on Medicare. Although, even when, uh, when you're talking about healthcare, it's, it's sort of uh, amusing to look at some of the early history of the public interest, and you, you come across statements like, uh, this is from the early 1970s. Well, everybody favors, everybody seems to favor health maintenance organizations. You know? um, and, uh, oh, uh, this one, my other favorite was, uh, I think, published exactly three decades ago, Paul Starr writing, the political appeal of national health insurance appears to be irresistible. Uh, on Social Security, the, the publication achieved a remarkable degree of consistency uh, over the years, over really about three decades, and, and that was largely because it was almost entirely the product of one man, Martin Feldstein. Um, you'd find, I think, you know, just, sort of just from glancing at, at it, I think you would say something like 75% of the commentary on Social Security in the public interest was by Feldstein, and another, you know, 15% was people commenting on Feldstein, reviewing his books, and that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, that, that uh, I, I, it may be that, uh, as my own editors at National Review have discovered, the, uh, the, the public's tolerance for uh, reading about these issues is, uh, is somewhat limited, um, and, and, and even more so for Medicare, which is sort of you know, a dreary topic that manages simultaneously to uh, have a sort of glum evocation of the inevitability of death and taxes. Um, but anyway, if you go back to... 1975, when, uh, when uh, you have one of the first big, and I think fairly influential, uh, Feldstein articles on Social Security. You can see um, some of the themes that have, been, that have carried forward into uh, the current day. Um, you already hear uh, this complaint, look, everything has changed in America since this program was put in place, and yet nothing has changed um, in terms of modernizing this program. So, and that's a, a kind of rhetoric that you know we've we heard quite a bit just over the last five years. Uh, and he talks, he mentions, you know, obviously the increase in life expectancy. Um, later in the history of, uh, of the public interest, he'll talk about this dramatic decrease in birth rates and how that's changed the equation. And also, he points out that you know that when this program was created, there was uh, there was a really widespread worry that the, the country saved too much money and that uh, and that, that threatened you know constant. Um, uh, depressions. Uh, this was, he said, you know, with some understatement, no longer, you know, a, a major problem in American life. Um, the general sort of stance of the public interest uh, toward the welfare state, I think, was uh, was confirmed in uh, in these writings. I've felt seen pretty much every one of these articles over the years um, explains why the libertarian uh, solution of just abolishing the program. Uh, was was undesirable and untenable, um, and that too many people would simply not save enough money uh, to provide for their old age, and why uh, the the solution of transforming the program into a pure welfare program, just having pure means tested program, also didn't work because if if that uh, uh, if the level of provision were substantial enough to keep people out of dire poverty, it would also generate. Um, uh, work disincentives um, that were uh, that were substantial. Um, he 
went on in pretty much every article to say, look, there's no danger of bankruptcy for Social Security. Nobody should, should worry about that because as long as the program has political support, the government can tax enough money to, uh, uh, to sustain it. Um, the question is, what level should it be? How should the program be designed? So, and his worries fell into a few different categories. Um, first, he was concerned about the expansion of the program, partly at the very early days because in 1972 the legislation had, had uh, indexed uh, the benefits for inflation in a particularly foolish way that, uh, that caused the program to, uh, to expand too quickly. Um, second, he was concerned about work disincentives, particularly for the elderly. Third, uh, he was concerned about the effects of Social Security on the capital stock, and in some places he, was, he estimated that um, America's capital stock was 40 or even 50 percent lower than it would have been without, uh, without Social Security. And then finally, there's this theme of uh, inequality um, being created by Social Security as a follow-on to the decline in the capital stock. By reducing the capital stock, the return on capital had been increased and the return on labor had been decreased, and this was a, this was a significant underappreciated source of uh, inequality. And the solution means kept uh, being pretty consistent over time also. Uh, the payroll tax needed to be raised. The program needed to be put, uh, taken away from a pay-as-you-go basis and put on a pre-funded basis. And uh, the link between benefits and contributions had to be tightened. Uh, and the reason that link had to be tightened was because if you had a purely, if you had a pure link where everything you put in you got back, or um, the more you put in, the more you got back, um, uh, there would, the work disincentives would disappear. The payroll tax you know, would sort of cease to be a tax in, in a crucial sense. Uh, and he always insisted there's no free lunch. You know, raising the payroll tax is going to impose some hardship, but it's not as bad as the alternatives. Um, later on, this basic story gets elaborated a little bit. Um, you hear a little bit more about the alleged unfairness of the program to two earner couples reflecting some changes that are going on in, uh, in the American workforce. Uh, but basically the same, um, same story. Well, you go ahead to 1985, um, around the 20th anniversary of the publication, and, uh, and Feldstein notes, you know, one of the striking social policy trends of the first uh, 20 years of the public interest's existence is that uh, Social Security and Medicare have just exploded in costs. Um, that... Uh, uh, that, in fact, for ma many people, uh, for most people, in fact, uh, the, the Social Security and Medicare tax bill is higher uh, than the income tax bill. Um, that the debate has changed and that uh, his, his views about the effects of Social Security on capital accumulation were wi more widely accepted. And the concerns raised by other people early in the history of the public interest that, uh, and elsewhere that uh, Medicare was leading to, uh, was contributing to uh, inflation of healthcare costs was more, more widely accepted. And uh, here, you know, he, he mentioned, you know, there were some obvious solutions. On Social Security was the same solution uh, that I've already mentioned. On Medicare, was we needed higher deductibles. We needed to, uh, and other kinds of healthcare, rein in the tax subsidy for healthcare. Um, he noted a new political factor was that young workers no longer believed they were going to get these benefits when they retired. Uh, and he expressed optimism that uh, Social Security would be moved to a pre-funding basis 
that the tax subsidy for health care would be reined in and made more rational. And then he noted that uh, the process of reform will be a critical test of our political system. Well, uh, I think it's pretty clear now that 20, 21 years later, the predictions did not pan out. The, uh, and uh, if that was a critical test of our political system, we failed it. Um, the, the major change in the late 1990s, uh, when Feldstein revisits these themes for the public interest, is he's now shifted from the whole idea of just the government pre-funding uh, the benefits of future generations of retirees to talking about personal accounts. And I think this reflects some uh, experience that uh, um, we all had the benefit of, which is that um, you know, the Greenspan Commission in 1983, having you know, done their big fix of Social Security, sort of stumbled into a partial pre-funding of the program. And this is actually sort of widely misremembered. People think that the Greenspan Commission tried uh, to do this, and it's actually more, more sort of an accident of, of, of the way their, uh, their estimates worked out. But um, the evidence was pretty clear that uh, the extra revenue that the uh, that the higher you know that having a higher payroll tax than necessary to pay out uh, current benefits uh, brought in was simply spent on other parts of uh, federal operations. And uh, part of the theory behind personal accounts was that you know if the uh, if the extra money were cordoned off in uh, uh, accounts that could be treated as the property of individual people, it would be harder to uh, affect that kind of diversion, and thus it would be more possible to actually pre-fund and actual, actually have the, uh, that higher tax go into actual savings. Um, but the, uh, there are a couple, a couple of blind spots, I think, that uh, are sort of interesting. In, in retrospect, um, especially since you know, we had a debate about some of the ideas that uh, uh, Feldstein proposed on Social Security just, um, just a year and a half ago. Uh, first is that the, the demographic issues really have sort of a kind of a spectral presence uh, in the public interest treatment of, uh, of Social Security uh, and to, well, to a lesser extent of Medicare. Um, it's treated as sort of an input. You know, there's a given. You know, like birth rates are falling, life expectancies are increasing, and this changes the dependency ratio. We have too many beneficiaries per uh, per contributor, um, and that causes a problem. But the notion that, that there might be sort of a demographic contradiction uh, within the program that it depends for its uh, continued operation on a constantly rising population that it tends also to frustrate practice. Um, really doesn't uh, come into play, uh, and I think that um, to the extent that it's you know that that, that these things are in, in fact related, uh, that ought to have entered the analysis of uh, uh, two earner versus one earner couples in a way that it, it just didn't. And the second thing is, I think there was really a slow, very slowly dawning awareness of the political constraints on reform, uh, and you see that in the evolution of thinking about. How is the government going to pre-fund um, Social Security? Uh, but I think it's sort of incomplete, and I, I can only speculate as to the reasons for that. I think one of them might be that the sort of new sociology of the new class, um, that whole sort of set of ideas, um, was very powerful, at least for a long time, with respect to a lot of issues having to do with crime and welfare 
uh, and education, uh, but really wasn't terribly powerful when it came to uh, these issues. Um, and then I wonder if partly there was a problem with you know, sort of the commitment to the welfare state that there might have been something just deep within the welfare state that presented the, prevented the rationalization of these programs and that this was not something that sort of the existing uh, sort of ideological equipment uh, of, of a lot of folks uh, associated with the publication uh, could address, not that any other people were particularly better at addressing it. I think that the public interest changed the debate about Social Security and to, uh, maybe a little bit about Medicare, but not the policy. And I don't. And I think even the question about how much it changed the debate uh, is is an open one. Um, you know, when when we had this big debate over Social Security in 2005, when it was you know the top item uh, legislatively for uh, the Bush administration. Yeah, there were some elements in common with the, the themes introduced in the public interest, but there were some real differences. Um, there was a very large faction of people who insisted, contrary to everything that had, the public interest had consistently said, that there could be a free lunch. Um, there was uh, the, the official line of the Bush administration, and most of its allies, was that the program was going bankrupt, something that uh, Feldstein, the public interest, had consistently said was a non-problem and not something that anybody should, should actually be concerned about. Um, the uh, uh, idea that part of the reason to reform Social Security was to expand uh, an alleged new investor class and that this was going to change American society and American politics, something that's almost entirely absent uh, from the public interest, but was a huge part of that debate. I mean, I think, you know, if you really want to stretch, you can find one sentence in an essay in 1980 that sort of hints that there might be something uh, to that idea. But that's, but that's basically not part of, uh, uh, of the equation. And the entire argument that, you know, the, the, the reason you want to have personal accounts is because it is a secure way of pre-funding Social Security for the future. That each the, the basic argument is um, personal accounts amount to 115 million lockboxes, um, which I take to be one of the most serious arguments uh, for that kind of reform. Um, was never really made. Uh, I mean, nobody made that kind of argument uh, in the uh, in the debates uh, of 2005, um, and so uh, I think that. Uh, uh, this set of uh, ideas um, never really was able to take off because there was never really a political constituency for it and there wasn't really any, uh, any thought about how such a constituency could be created. Let's see, we, we actually have to end promptly at 7 o'clock, so I'm going to forego the, the chair's uh, prerogative of asking some questions, and I want to open it up right away. And uh, as Professor George said, we begin with students. So if there are any students here uh, who'd like to start off the questioning, and I know we have, I think Ryan is in the, Ryan's up there with a the mic. Uh, so if there are any students, stand up and you can start the show. If not, we can, we can move on to those who are closer to social, to social security. 
Well, like, uh, like Ramesh, I was drawn, among other things, to the 20th anniversary issue of the public interest. And uh, in, that, you know, in that issue, yes, we have an article by Martin Feldstein entitled The Social Security Explosion. Uh, and we also have a very interesting reflective article by Irving Kristol. And here's what Irving had to say about these subjects, which I think will help explain some of what you were pointing to. Uh, Irving said, the failure or at least non-success of so much of social policy in the past 20 years can be exaggerated. Not every program failed, and there are a few important ones that represent positive achievements. Medicare, for instance, is in my opinion an example of such a program. It has radically improved the quality of life for elderly Americans. Indeed, I am not even much upset by the extraordinary liberalization of Social Security benefits, a topic that seems to obsess so many conservatives in Congress and out. Now, I cite that paragraph to underscore a very basic point, and that is that what characterized the neoconservative founder, the founders of the public interest and many influential neoconservatives from 1965 up to the present day is that they accepted the New Deal, lock, stock, and barrel. And not only that, they accepted substantial portions of the great society as well. And Irving and his friends have never been the patron saints of lost causes. Uh, this fact that you cite, namely that there is simply no constituency for a substantial rolling back of the New Deal or of the fundamental positive achievements of the great society is one that he and Matt Glazer and just about everybody else who was sentient understood from the beginning. Uh, and it seems to me that one of the fundamental tensions in today's conservative conservative politics, is that there is a stratum of modern conservatism that does not accept the New Deal, never has, and may pretend to from time to time, but in fact is in principle opposed to it. And it seems to me that this is a topic that deserves somewhat more discussion than it's received so far. Well, I guess I should probably <laughs> yeah. say something about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, you know, that when, you, when I read some of those early um, essays, and even Feldstein, who I think you know, sort of more of a more of a libertarian, more of an economic conservative than uh, uh, than many of the other uh, folks associated with the public interest, that you don't, you know, you never hear any grappling with um, the question. Well, you know, you know is, is this is this program constitutional? Should it uh, should it even be around? And I think. You know, there's this sort of impatience, you know, why would this thought even occur to you? What, what's the point of, of asking or talking about the thing? That's so, so completely, you know, not um, on the table um, that, uh, uh, that it's just it's not even worthwhile to ask, let alone um, to answer. I also think, you know, what it's, you know the, 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 the line uh, from Irving Crystal, you know, I'm not too upset about it. I think that gets something about the, the attitude of a lot of neoconservatives toward these programs where, I mean, it really was, uh, as I was saying, you know, it didn't keep them up at night. No, you know, when it came to welfare, 
um, you know, people might be able to make associations between um, bad liberal policies and family dysfunction and crime. And nobody was afraid they were going to get mugged in the street and, you know, you know, have their throat slit because Social Security was expanding too fast. Um, and I think that, you know, that had political effects and it had effects even in the you know, world of intellectual politics. I just want to add, Bill, I think you're right to say that the founders had that view. Well, I wouldn't agree that uh, that the development of a more hardline conservatism later diminished the influence of the public interest. In fact, maybe the opposite, that uh, the development of these very ideological libertarian conservatives on the, on the right in some ways enhanced the credibility of what then became the center, which was these more moderate policies involving, um, uh, as I was arguing, paternalism, where you, you go on helping people, but you also make stipulations about good behavior. They became more credible, precisely because we now had ideological conservatives as well as ide ideological liberals. In fact, the, the, the extremists on the right and the left shared uh, an assumption that the poor were personally competent, and all we had to do was enlarge their economic opportunities. They simply differed about how to do that. The left wanted to abolish big government, and the right, I'm sorry, to build it up, and the conservatives wanted to abolish it, but they both assumed that people were able to take care of themselves. Uh, and and that is the, that precisely the assumption that much of the public interest question, in its realism and its focus on behavior and culture, it actually brought that assumption into question. And that is exactly what is most distinctive about the public interest. And the moderate position, it, it sounds like it, it is moderate in the left-right sense, but it's not moderate in, in, in this concern for personal confidence and responsibility that I was talking about. In that respect, it was much more realistic than either the left or the right. So in a way, the, the appearance of the, the hardline uh, conservatives, I would say, enhanced the appeal of this uh, more realistic position. I, I, I know we don't have time to have a trifecta with every question, but let me, because uh, I, I just want to agree entirely with Bill. Just my grandmother, too, wants to agree entirely with you. And I think there's three principles. I mean, I think uh, that passage from Irving Crystal and so much else that appeared in the early public interest and certainly uh, in the 80s and, and 90s um, was consistent. I mean, I, I don't want to go too far and say it was essentially the FDR philosophy as I would understand it, but if you, can, if you define it as follows, show me something in the public interest that would, be, that would contradict the following statement. Government can and should uh, promote the conditions under which average men, women, and children can lead peaceful and productive, if not uniformly prosperous, lives. Show me an essay that show me an essay that says, you know, be allergic to government. Show me an essay that says, be addicted to government. It said, don't be addicted, don't be allergic. If you have to choose, be a little more allergic than you are addicted. And it also basically said, if you identify something that is broke, you don't have to come up with the policy solution to fix it, but try to identify the principles or the conditions under which you think it might be. Now that, to me. Uh, was very much alive in, you know, compassionate conservatism, and people debate was it just a slogan, this and that. I don't think it was, but I mean, it was sort of neoconservatism and occasional religious drag, um, and uh, because it had all those elements, it was ministry and Medicaid for urban policy. Uh, it was an attempt to go beyond simply identifying problems and to be very directive and specific about about changing particular programs in ways that could improve the uh, life prospects including for the inner city poor. And so I think the public interest, uh, at least through my lens, what I always loved about it, uh, stood for, for that uh, perspective on the part of people who uh, were uh, incredibly gifted and, and whose conservative credentials could never be challenged. Let me just, one tiny little thing also. That, 
you know, toward the end of, of his career, Senator Moynihan came to the view that personal accounts and social security were not a sort of repudiation of the New Deal and the Great Society, but really a sort of completion of it, uh, which I think is a really interesting perspective um, uh, in thinking about the policy issues. But I think it's also clear that uh, that isn't the perspective of most of the people who, are, who have advocated uh, personal accounts, including me. More, more questions? I think we right up here. A question for the panel in general, uh, particularly given uh, Professor DeLulio's failure to read. Uh, it is said in the uh, book of essays called Essays on the Scientific Study of Politics uh, by Leo Strauss at one point in his characterization of social science that modern social scientists were fiddling while Rome burned. Uh, that particular criticism stung deeply, of course, most people in political science and other social science professions, but the gravamen of it seemed to mean something like the following. Social science is not concerned with the impact, with its effects upon social policy. That there was a gulf between the practice of social science and the development of public policy, and that there was not any assumption or confession of a necessary link between them. In talking about the public interest, I hear what the postmodernists might call a subtext, but I want to know if you want to make it an explicit text, namely that the social science of the public interest was always constrained by a preference with regard to policy outcomes. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, I knew we would get to Strauss uh, eventually, and uh, you know I probably should have read him closer early on. I like what he had to say about natural rights and natural law, but then again, various popes said it better. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I, I, I jest. Um, uh, but uh, but uh, you know the let, let me put it this way: um, the notion that social science per se, and we haven't defined that, so we're, 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 we're wordsmithing and semanticizing here. But social science, that we're, in a build, we're not far from a building on this campus, one of the few buildings on this campus that is named for a professor, not a donor, uh, Corwin Hall, named for Edward Corwin. And Corwin had a definition of political science as the study of the true ends of the state and the conditions under which they could be achieved. And you had to figure out what the true ends of the state were, justice, liberty, etc and then figure out how to achieve them. And that was a tradition in political, I think that essay was written in 23 or 24, 19, and that tradition in political science at least never died, and never died in a lot of fields. Now a lot of absolute nitwittery uh, goes on uh, by the time we get to the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and then that nitwittery takes on an ideological guise that you know, defeats both the, you know, uh, that turns in much of political science into a device created by university pressers for avoiding politics while not achieving science. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and in other fields, uh, the problems are just as bad, if not worse. I think the, the social science, as it appeared in the public interest, was deeply concerned about conditions and character. You can't read hardly any of the, and I think Larry or uh, Mesh could, or Adam for that matter, could you know, uh, add or subtract from this, you can't read the public interest without seeing that the people who wrote for it, as diverse as they were, 
even in terms of their degree to which they were social scientists or trying to be social scientists or drawing on social science, interested in shaping character, interested in human formation, uh, whether that's with respect to earth, urban uh, crime and policy, uh, it, it, to me it would be impossible uh, to make that, that claim. So they were among the best, and as has all already been said as well, with respect to a uh, number of, uh, again, very diverse people from Jim Wilson to Charlie Murray and others, they also knew how to write, and so they can get their points across well. They could translate these abstractions and ideas into, right, so. I would agree with Strauss that there's been a detachment of social science from policy, and that's one of the underlying forces behind the public interest. Uh, in fact, uh, today it's very seldom true that a social scientist in any discipline makes any attempt to connect a rigorous argument about what we should do about something with how to get there, how to do it politically or in terms of the institutions. It's almost unheard of. And the reason is, again, the methodological trends I was talking about, that you cannot reason about such a connection with enough rigor to get it into the top journals, and therefore it isn't done. And so uh, statecraft as a problem is simply not a matter of research in the social sciences today. And what the public interest did, I think, in large measure, is fill that vacuum. It, 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 it called upon the few social scientists who were willing to do that to try to do it. And many of them, actually, in the public interest, went further, went further in trying to do that than they did in their more technical research, which often was of a more scholastic character. And P.I. said to them, okay, imagine that you're a dictator, you're a sort of philosopher king. What would you do? How would you do it? And at least they talked about it, and, and, and at a time when nobody else was talking about it. So I think we've, we've hit 7 o'clock by my watch, and I've been told we really have to close our doors at 7. So let me just... Uh, Thank our three panelists. Very much. Madam, thank you for chairing uh, that panel, and thanks to our panelists. Uh, let me just announce that we will uh, reassemble uh, tomorrow morning at uh, 9.15 uh, for uh, uh, the, the, pan uh, the uh, panel entitled The Character of American uh, Capitalism, uh, which will feature uh, Dr. Erwin Stelzer. Uh, and then at 11.15, uh, we have a panel on education featuring Joseph Vitteritti, Harvey Mansfield, uh, and William Allen. 2.15, um, uh, panel on manners, marriage, and uh, manners, morals, in modern America featuring Kay Heimowitz, Diana Schaub, and uh, Wilfred McClay. And then our closing roundtable with Bill Bennett, Bill Galston, uh, Nathan Glazer, uh, and Bill McClay, chaired by uh, uh, Bill Crystal. So uh, uh, thanks for coming today. I look forward to seeing you all tomorrow. Again, it's at 9.15 in this room.